I'm Tabby Smiley. That's the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Glory Days. I'm told by Miles that song was requested by our guest in this hour. I'll ask him why uh, in just a second. I love the boss. Uh, puts on a great show, marathon show, like three hours plus. Bruce Springsteen will give it to you. Uh, I'm Tabby Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. Glad to have you with us in this hour. And in this hour, do you ever feel like you're out of touch with the younger generation and their experiences? How do you navigate the challenges of connecting with a generation that seems to be constantly evolving? In this hour, Dr. Jeffrey Jansen Arnett, a senior research scholar at Clark University and a leading expert on emerging adulthood. That's a term he coined, emerging adulthood, uh, which is the age period from the late teens to the mid-20s. Whether you're a parent, an employer, or simply someone interested in understanding the dynamics of contemporary society, I think his insights into this unique and ever-evolving life stage can help shed some light this hour on the values, goals, and challenges of this younger generation that I don't always understand, so I'm delighted to have an expert on this generation in this hour, Dr. Jeffrey Jensen Arnett. Dr. Arnett, how are you today, sir? I'm doing very well. How are you, Tavis? I'm doing the best I can. If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. Thank you for the time. Glad we got an hour, <laughs> a lot to talk about here. Uh, I'm just curious, to why, why, why the boss? Why would you tell Miles you wanted to play that song today? Well, I love the boss, as most people do. But also, that song, it sort of fits the theme today. It's about this time of life that is full of decisions, is full of anxiety, is full of trouble for a lot of people, but it's also a time that I think most people re- remember very fondly. It's a time when anything seemed possible. It's a time that most people say that they had their most memorable experiences uh, in later decades. Mm-hmm. So it's a complex time of life and, and a fascinating time of life. I've been researching and interviewing people in this age period for the last 30 years, and it never gets old. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about emerging adulthood, we're talking, as I intimated moments ago, about persons ages 18 to 29. Um, you coined that phrase, emerging adulthood. So let's start there. I think the terminology uh, matters. I believe that words matter. And if we're going to work our way through this hour, we should all be on the same page. So what is emerging adulthood? Why have you chosen to study it? Just take your time and give me the backstory, and then we'll jump from there, sir. Sure. Yeah, I agree with you, Tavis, that words matter. And when I first started interviewing people in their 20s around 30 years ago, I was just curious about what they would say about their lives. I was curious about whether they would believe they'd reached adulthood and what they thought makes a person an adult. And as I interviewed them, I felt like they didn't seem like adolescents because I'd been researching adolescents for years. I mean, obviously... They're more mature than that. They're not going through puberty. They're not in high school. They're not minors under the law and so on. Uh, but they didn't really seem like young adults either. I mean, in the sense that, you know, you reach, supposedly you used to reach young adulthood at 18 and you're a young adulthood, a young adult from 18 to 40. Mm-hmm. And that just didn't make sense to me because they, they weren't really settled into adult life. And when I asked them this big question, do you feel like you reached adulthood? Most of them didn't just say yes or no. They said, well, I feel like I am in some ways. I'm getting there, but I'm not fully adult yet. And so that's how I came up with the term emerging adulthood. And that 
is a term that a lot of people like, as I've discovered. I mean, a lot of people like having something to distinguish it that's not adolescence and mm-hmm. it's not young adulthood. Nope, I, I receive that. Uh, let me ask, given that you've spent three decades of your life dedicated to this, I'm always fascinated by researchers, scholars, and, 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 uh, and academics about why they choose to dedicate so much of their lives, some of them their entire lives, to a, to a particular field of study. Why, for you, is it important to study emerging adulthood, and what do the rest of us gain uh, from your study of emerging adulthood? Well, when I first started studying this age period, Tavis, it was understudied. I mean, hardly anybody was studying people in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And so it was really important for me to try to draw attention to it. I found very quickly that it was fascinating to interview them. It's such a dramatic time of life for most people. They were so insightful about their experiences and so thoughtful and so hopeful. I really felt like I wanted to draw more attention from other researchers to this age period mm-hmm. so that people would know more about it. And I think it's helpful for people to know what's going on. I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, I really like this idea of emerging adulthood because I don't feel fully adult, but I'm I'm not an adolescent. And you, you really described where I feel like I am in life. So I think for some people it's had that effect too helping them understand themselves better. And parents, too. I I wrote a book for parents Mm -hmm. called Getting to 30. That's an advice book about how to be a parent of a kid in your 20s. And a lot of parents have found it helpful to understand what's typical now during this age period. Because it's a lot different than it used to be. People marry a lot later. They have their first child a lot later. They settle into a stable job a lot later. So it helps people to, to understand What's normal now in order to understand themselves and, and for parents, their kids? Yeah, I'm sure there are many parents listening right now who are parenting kids in their 20s. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on, uh, perhaps we can offer them some advice <laughs> about dealing with yeah. uh, relating to uh, those who are in this uh, category of emerging adulthood, age 18 to 29. Uh, we'll talk when we come forward with Dr. Arnett about the key characteristics of emerging adulthood and pick up on the point he just made a moment ago that they have, in fact, those characteristics have changed over time. He's been doing this for three plus decades now, and so he ought to know. Uh, it should be a fascinating hour as we talk about, uh, again, this uh, this uh, emerging adulthood phase of our lives that each of us go through and how at the stage you are in life right now, you can better deal with those who are in the stage that you were once in. You're listening to Dr. Jeffrey Jensen Arnett on KBLA Talk fifteen eight. Tavis Smiley, our guest in this hour is Dr. Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, uh, expert on what he has coined uh, as a phrase, emerging adulthood. In case you've just tuned in, we're looking at that age of 18 to 29. Uh, Some of you listening right now may be in that age group, and we'll uh, uh, see if Dr. Arnett uh, pegs you right in that 18 to 19 age group. Uh, Others of you have kids who you are trying to parent in that age group. I had dinner with a friend of mine last night. Uh, and uh, he was just telling me uh, last evening uh, some of the uh, the uh, the drama uh, that he's dealing with, uh, trying to manage relationships uh, with a child he has in that particular age group. So we'll see if parents uh, can uh, relate to what Dr. Arnett 
uh, has to say uh, as we move through this hour. So, again, he coined the phrase emerging adulthood. He's researched it for three plus decades. He's written about it. And he teed up a question that I want to now jump right to. And that is, what are the key characteristics, the key characteristics, that is, of emerging adulthood? And to your point of a moment ago, Dr. Arnett, how have those uh, characteristics changed over time, sir? Take it away. Yeah, well, I think a big one is that it's a time of life of figuring out who you are and how you fit into the world. Mm-hmm. In psychology, we talk about forming an identity, and that, that's what that means, deciding who you are, what you want to do with your life. That's the time where it really happens, because you know you have to make choices in love and work, and they're big choices. And for most people... Um, you know, this is the time when you do it. You know, you have, you try out various educational plans, you try out um, different possible jobs, you might have a series of relationships, and that's in the course of finding out what you really want and what really suits you. So I think that's a big one. Mm-hmm. A second one I talk a lot about a lot is instability. So there are a lot of changes. People change jobs, loves partners. They change where they live. The 20s is a decade where people are most likely to change residence. So that's another one. And then an- another one that's real important is their optimism. Mm. I was really struck by how optimistic they are. And that's even if not things are even if things are not going well, which often they're not. You know, most of them they don't have any money. And it's difficult to enter to answer these identity questions. It's difficult to find a job. Their unemployment rate is higher than any older age group. Mm-hmm. And when they, even if they do have a job, they don't get paid much. So it's a time of life of a lot of struggle. But almost everybody thinks that eventually they're going to get what they want out of life. Mm. That that latter point strikes me as fascinating. Um, Fascinating because on the one hand, I can see why at a certain age, when you only have so much life behind you, uh, that you are uh, optimistic about, uh, and if not optimistic, certainly hopeful uh, about the rest of your future. Nobody wants to acknowledge at age 20, 22, 25, 27, that they've experienced the best that life has to offer. So you want to believe that there's something greater later. Uh, so I get the optimism in that regard. What, I, what I'm trying to juxtapose that optimism against are two things. Number one, and you're the right person to talk to us about, Dr. Dr. Arnett. Number one, I'm juxtaposing it against or attempting to uh, uh, juxtapose it against what you just teed up a moment ago, and that is these economic factors, um, high student debt, low-paying jobs, lack of affordable housing. Many kids go to school, graduate, come right back home to live with their parents again. I know the parents listening right now can say amen. I heard them. Uh, A lot of their kids are right back living in the house after they've got these college degrees because they can't afford to buy their own homes. Uh, I'm trying to, again, square their optimism against those factors. And I'm also looking at data that suggests to me that this age group uh, has a pretty high suicide rate as compared to other age groups. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to, again, square their optimism that you're studying against that reality as well. Talk to me, sir. Yeah, well, that's a great point, Tavis, and you're absolutely right. They have high rates of depression and anxiety because it is tough for all the reasons we've just been talking about. you got no money. It's hard to figure out what to do with your life. You know, if you have to still live with your parents, you have to move back at home, then you feel like you're not making progress. 
they struggle a lot. But the optimism is what keeps them going, is what I've concluded. I mean, if life is really difficult for you, and you don't believe that eventually things are going to get better, then you just give up, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned the suicide rates, and even more broadly than that, it's high rates of depression and anxiety. So it's a struggle for a lot of people. But there, there's that light at the end of the tunnel. Most of them believe. They, they have to believe mm-hmm. that eventually life will smile on them. That's what gets them out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at two, two persons right now um, who I work with every day um, who are in this age group. They are um, part of your emerging adulthood uh, case study, as it were. And I find that on a regular basis, I learn things from them. Um, they, 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 they nickname me and call me coach around here uh, oftentimes. So they are learning things from me, but I'm learning things from them all the time as well. And I don't mean just things in vis-a-vis technology. They always know that stuff. But I'm learning other things from them. And one of the things I, I, I think that there is uh, for those of us who, shall we say, are more chronologically gifted, those of us who are more chronologically <laughs> gifted, there are things that we can learn from these uh, persons in this emerging adulthood category of 18 to 29. And one of those things to my mind, Dr. Arnett, is learning how, uh, beyond their optimism, they navigate transitions. Because as you get older, there are still various transitions. There are on-ramps and off-ramps that never seem to stop in your life. And this generation does seem to have a pretty good handle on navigating these transitions. Um, Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think another positive thing that I see about this generation is that they're very open-minded. They're very accepting and tolerant of group differences. They even celebrate differences Mm -hmm. in a way that older generations have not. I mean, as I'm sure you know, racial issues have been a problematic thing in this country for hundreds of years, and they still are. We see it every day, mm-hmm. but I have hopes for this generation because they're the most likely to really be accepting and embracing of racial differences, gender differences, sexual differences, sexual identity differences. You know, they, they, they love the diversity of the world. And I think that's a hopeful thing yep. for a country as diverse as ours. We need to do better at learning to live together and we have a long way to go. But I think there's hope for this generation. Let, let me let me probe that a bit uh, more because I, I hear your point, and I don't I don't disagree with that. I, I see it all the time in this building and beyond that this emerging adulthood generation is greatly um, uh, to you, I mean uh, to your point much more tolerant rather uh, of all the things that you just laid out that I don't need to repeat. And I'm wondering whether or not or why that is. Is it just because as time has passed on and the country has become more open, uh, I, I say all the time, that at our best, um, this country has always been about expanding rights and not shrinking rights. We're in a phase right now, we won't get into this with you in this hour, but I discuss it all the time. We now have a Supreme Court that's all about shrinking rights, not about expanding rights, and that's not what America is at her best. So I'm wondering whether or not it's just the mere passage of time, um, the chronos, the, the, the passing of time, um, that has allowed the country to change, and these generations, um, uh, this emerging adult generation, uh, on demand is more tolerant because the world around them has simply changed. Or is it something more? Is something fundamentally different about them than older generations that makes them more tolerant? Does that question make sense to you? 
That's a great question. And I think two things. I think, as you said, we gradually are making progress very slowly in this country. But if you think of it, it's only, what, less than 60 years since the Civil Rights Act Mm -hmm. and the Voting Rights Act. And those were huge landmarks at the time. They're huge turning points in our national life. They just gave uh, black people so much more of a chance to participate in, in American life. And following that, you know, we've seen the expansions of rights and the expansion of participations among diverse groups in American society, the election of the first African-American president in 2008. I mean, Barack Obama, it means a lot. Mm-hmm. He did then and he does now as a sign of just how much this country has changed over the, the, the past centuries and even the past decades. Yeah. But I think the other thing is, you know, we let in a huge amount of em- immigration in this country in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And it's controversial now, it was controversial de- then, but the fact is we let in tens of millions of people from all around the world. And so for this generation, I feel like they've just grown up with diversity all over the place. Mm. I mean, my kids, I live in Worcester, Massachusetts, my kids went to a high school where there were kids from families that spoke 80 different languages, Tavis. Mm-hmm. So there are immigrants from literally all over the world. And my son, he had his best friends were from Kenya and Albania and Vietnam. That was his friendship group. And that was like nothing I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And I think it signifies how much more diversity this generation has been exposed to. And, you know, they think it's cool. They, not all of them, but but by and large, they think it's it really adds a lot to life to meet people from different backgrounds who have different perspectives. Yeah, just because you're exposed to it, I mean, exposure allows you to be, um, I think, uh, you know, more well versed, um, uh, if I can put it that way, uh, in the ways of the mm-hmm. world. On the one hand, on the other hand, just because you're exposed to difference doesn't mean you can't be a bigot. I mean, you can't get much different than black. You can't get much different than black and white. And yet, while that was clearly a difference, it was a diversity of a different kind. People remain bigoted yeah. and still do for years in this country. And that's why I was pressing on whether or not beyond just the fact that things are changing. The great writer Bernard Eigner said everything must change. Um, and and I, I've said many times that it seems to me that change is inevitable, but growth is optional. Change is inevitable, yeah. But growth is optional, and so I'm, I'm I'm pressing again on whether or not beyond the obvious changes that take place over the passage of time, whether or not this generation has are, are they are they bigger hearted, are they are is is there a, le- a greater level of humility? I'm trying to get an understanding of whether or not this emerging yeah. adult generation is just different. Put another way, better than we old folk. Yeah, I think they are better in some ways. You know, not all of them. There's a lot of diversity in every generation. Right. But I guess we got to hope we're making progress, Tavis. You know, I, I do think we are. It's slow, and sometimes it seems like we're going backward, as I think we've done a lot of that the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. But I do think, uh, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, the, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Mm-hmm. We've got to hope that's true, and I believe it is true if you look at the broad sweep yeah. of the history of our country. But it's slow, and there, 
There are a lot of bumps in the road. There are a lot of steps backwards. Yeah, Dr. King is my hero. This audience knows that. I say all the time that I've written a book about him, of course. Mine too. Yeah, I've written a book about him, and uh, I've said many times that he is the greatest American this country's ever produced. That's my assessment, the greatest American mm-hmm. that we've ever produced. And yet, uh, while I love his words, I've wrestled with that quote many times, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I would, I would, I would quibble with Dr. King where you're in front of me right now and say, Dr. King, I'm not sure it bends towards justice. I think we have to bend it. <laughs> I don't think it just. Yeah, I love that. I, I don't think it just bends. I think we have I to bend that. it. Yes, I, 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 I'm sure. You're King, right. It's not a natural law. Yeah, it's not a natural law. It's not going to happen automatically, and it can go backwards. Yeah. Yeah, I think it can that, go backwards. It think, can get bent the wrong way. Yeah, I think Dr. King would t- he would he would engage me in that in that in that discourse about whether it bends <laughs> or whether it has to be bent. I digress on that point. Yeah. I got I've got ninety seconds here before news, traffic, and sports will continue when we come forward, of course. But let me ask you right quick as we tee this up: What role do cultural and social factors play in shaping the experiences of this emerging adult uh, generation? Huge. I mean, you can't overstated honestly i've interviewed people from all sorts of different backgrounds mm-hmm. and just seen again and again how much it matters what your parents are like what your family environment is like where you happen to be born in the world i mean mm-hmm. i'm right now working with a team that's doing a project in africa in four different african countries and it's utterly fascinating because they're different even than the African-Americans I've interviewed. I mean, one of our projects focuses on Namibia, and like South Africa, they had apartheid Mm -hmm. for a century before it finally uh, ended in 1994. So now there's this generation, what they call generation born free. Mm -hmm. The first people, young people, black people in Namibia to grow up without apartheid and they're fascinating and and um full of high hopes but uh it's a dawning change to be dealing with and grappling with and growing up with yeah but that's one example that i've really been struck by yeah um i i'm I'm thinking of some parents uh, some friends of mine who are parents uh who had younger children and uh, for at least eight years uh they only knew a black president <laughs> during the eight years of obama they they didn't know that that white guys could be president all they knew was an african-american uh as president named barack hussein obama so i take your point about this generation born free when we come forward after news traffic and sports we'll come to the sweet spot perhaps of this conversation and that is the relationship between parents we get expressly uh, and more deeply into that the relationship that parents can foster with this emerging adulthood generation if you are if you're trying to navigate uh, that part of your life uh, that and a great deal more when we come forth with dr jeffrey jensen arnett on kbla talk 15 at kbla talk 1580 we do more than just talk you got a big mouth hello joe you're up welcome we're unapologetically progressive and we don't black down I'm Tavis Smiley. He is Dr. Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, and you are listening to KBLA Talk 1580, and we are glad about it. Uh, talking in this hour about emerging adulthood, uh, that winding road from the late teens through the 20s, uh, particularly 18 to 29, uh, and um, how we can better understand and uh, relate to those who are in this particular period of their lives. Every one of us at some point has to do that dance with mortality. Uh, But uh, on the way to the dance, um, we uh, go through this phase um, that Dr. Arnett calls emerging adulthood. And we're trying to better understand um, the cultural and social factors and the like 
uh, that shape the experiences of those who are in this particular period of their lives and how those characteristics have changed over time. Now I want to come directly uh, to a conversation with Dr. Arnett about parents. And I can broaden this out to talk about educators, policymakers, all kinds of fellow citizens um, who can do things uh, perhaps better to support the development and well-being of these emerging adults. We'll get to that perhaps in, in a moment here. But broadly speaking, uh, Dr. Arnett, uh, what advice? Um, I'm sure you get asked this question all the time <laughs> by parents, uh, by parents who have uh, uh, children in this age group, this emerging adulthood age group. And to those parents who ask you a variety of questions, in a nutshell, you essentially tell them what? I tell them I feel your pain because <laughs> I have twenty-three. I have twenty-three-year-old twins right now. You know, when I started starting this age group, Tavis, I was I was uh, just past thirty myself, and I remembered it well. But now I have kids who are going through it, and it, it's been fascinating and wonderful and painful. Uh, so I think I understand. <laughs> I understand it as a researcher and as a parent who's going through it as well. And if I could just put it in a nutshell, I would say realize the limits of your power. Mm. You don't have you don't have the power you used to have, and that's probably a good thing. They have to make decisions that are going to help them build a life for themselves, and they have to own those decisions. They might not be decisions that you're crazy about. They might not be decisions you would have made. But as long as they're not doing anything that's harmful to themselves or others, I think you have to back up and wish them well and do what you can to support them. Mm-hmm. In most cases, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's some cases where you do have to inter- intervene because they are a danger to themselves or others. But that's really rare. Most of the time, you know, they're trying real hard to figure out life and their place in the world. You have to let them make those choices, even if you don't really think those are the wisest or best choices. Mm-hmm. This, is an, this, is, this is perhaps an impossible question to which you are saying, well, then why are you asking it, Tavis? I'm asking it because <laughs> I'm asking because I'm just curious as to whether or not there is something here. Um, in your research and in your study, are there things that you can point to, uh, changes specifically I'm talking about now, in the world, uh, the world house, uh, as Dr. King would put it, since we are talking about King earlier, the world house that we now inhabit, um, that, that, that make it so much more difficult for those in this emerging adulthood phase? What I'm, what I'm thinking about, had a conversation the other day uh, with a guest about how uh, new data uh, suggests that the majority of fellow citizens believe that social media and nonstop content is a threat to our democracy, not just to our minds, not just to our relationships with other fellow citizens, other human beings, but a threat to our very democracy. Um, and, and I'm wondering whether or not all of this exposure, anyway, take it any way you want to take it, all this exposure uh, has made the challenges that this generation face a bit more difficult. I mean, parents are trying to, I hear your advice to parents, you know, that you don't have the power that you used to have. I'm trying to figure out what I indict for that. Is it social media? Is mm-hmm. it, you tell, is that, I'm, I'm rambling because I'm trying to make sense of it. Does it make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it does. You know, I think every generation has its challenges. I think for this generation, one of them is social media. I mean, 
it's not all a bad thing, right? There's a reason they're attracted to it. The, the reason they're attracted to it is because it connects them to others. Mm-hmm. As I was saying earlier, this is the time in your life where you're most likely to change residence and change the city you live in. Mm-hmm. So you're all the time moving away from friends. You moved away from family. You moved away from everybody you knew and everywhere you go, you often move again within six months or a year. Mm-hmm. So social media can be a lifeline to people in this age group because it allows them to connect with others. I mean, it has negative aspects too, as it does for all of us, Tavis, Mm -hmm. not just them. We're all too distracted by our screens. We're all tempted to be pulling them out all the time instead of talking to the person across the table from us. Mm -hmm. So it's a problem for our society as a whole. But I would just want to remind people, this is also a generation that has, in many ways, more opportunity than any generation in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the proportion of people who go to college, who um, go to postgraduate education, if you look at the way possibilities for women have changed since uh, 50, 60 years ago, if you look at the, pop- uh, the possibilities for black people now and other minorities that they didn't have 50 or 60 years ago. I mean, again, other, every generation has its problems. I'm not saying this generation doesn't mm-hmm. have some really stiff challenges, but things, things could be worse. They could be a whole lot worse right now. The unemployment rate is 3.5%, as you probably know. And, you know, it's a bit higher than that for uh, emerging adults. They always have a higher unemployment rate than older adults do. But even for them, it's around 7%. That's lower than it almost ever is. And the gap between black and white unemployment, Tavis, is about the lowest ever recorded right now. Unemployment has really declined for young black people in the last 10, 20 years. And it's a great success story. You don't see it in the headlines because bad news doesn't sell. But the fact is, there are many ways that things are pretty darn good right now. Yeah, I mean, they, the, the numbers I've have, um, I, I hear you about the numbers. I was just talking to a black economist about this the other day. Um, those numbers are in some ways better than they have been, but they are stubborn. That is that is that gap. Um, that unemployment gap remains stubborn uh, between black and white in this country. Another conversation for another time. Um, I take your point specifically when, when, it, when it comes to young people. But writ large, that gap between black employment and white employment right. is stubborn, to say the least. I'll, I'll again, do that another mm-hmm. day. Uh, let, me, let me just I want to okay. do, do this right quick. There are two, two or three things. I want to just play devil's advocate and just press you on two or three things right quick about your research. Okay. Uh, and see what your responses are. Here's my first press. Um I'm wondering whether or not the concept of emerging adulthood, as you so named it, is really a a, a Western phenomenon and may not be relevant to people of other cultures and societies. Put another way, is this an American thing? It's definitely not an American thing. I think it's it's a thing wherever you have an increase in recent decades in when people get married and when they have their first child, and you have an increase in how long they stay in education and how long it takes them to get a job that they're going to have long-term. Mm-hmm. And that applies to most countries in the world. As I said, I'm, I'm part of a project right now in four African countries. Right. They certainly think, these African researchers think it's happening there. I have close colleagues in China. They are 
really keen on emerging adulthood. They say it's happening all over the place in their country. Yeah. All over Europe, I spent a lot of time there. My wife is from Denmark. My daughter right now is living in France. I spent a lot of time in Europe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it's happening there. Yeah. So, you know, it takes different forms in different countries depending on cultural factors, depending on economy, depending on race relations, depending on a whole lot of things. Yeah. Um, but this, this, this new stage in between adolescence and young adulthood, that's happening all over the world. Yeah. When we come forward, um, here's my next press. Some argue that this extended period of self-focus and experimentation that you and I have been talking about in this hour vis-a-vis uh, -vis emerging adulthood, uh, some argue that self-focus and experimentation extended can lead to a lack of direction, a lack of purpose, Dr. Arnett, and that these emerging adults may be better served by a more structured and focused transition. So I want to ask when we come forward, as I will, uh, whether or not the focus on personal exploration and self-discovery during emerging adulthood is really beneficial. We'll get that answer and a bit more when we come forward with Dr. Jeffrey Jensen Arnett on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Arnett, is the focus on personal exploration and self-discovery during emerging adulthood beneficial or uh, counterintuitive? I think it's mostly beneficial, Tavis, but I, I think you raise a good point. I mean, if you tell people, okay, now you have a decade to figure out where you want to go in life, I find that most people thrive on that. Yes, it's a time of a lot of anxiety. There can be disappointments on the way. But most of them are just really excited about taking this opportunity, this freedom to build a life, life for themselves. But not everybody. Some of them are overwhelmed by it. Or some of them just aren't that ambitious. And so... You know, they stayed on the basement, playing a lot of video games, going out with their friends, you know, working if they have to. Almost everybody realizes at some point that's not going to take you anywhere. So I'd say there's diversity, but by and large, what I've found over 30 years, most of them are taking this opportunity to do everything they can to build the kind of life they want. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, building the kind of lives, uh, lives that they want, uh, back to parents, which we were discussing earlier. How can parents support the development and well-being of the emerging adults in their lives? I would say number one is listen to them. No, you know, don't just talk to them. Listen to them. They really appreciate it if parents treat them more like equals. They're never going to be your equal. I mean, you're a lot older. You're smarter. You're wiser. Hopefully. But they at least like being treated with some respect as an emerging adult, as somebody whose opinion can be listened to and taken seriously, even if you don't agree with them. So it's a, it's a mistake to treat them as if they're still six or 16. I mean, you have to adapt to the way they've changed. That, I think, is probably the secret of good parenting throughout your kids growing up is to adapt to their changes and don't do the same thing at a younger age uh, as you, you're doing at an older age. You know, you have to adapt and change as they adapt and change. Mm -hmm. um, what about the issue of entitlement for this generation? And that's, uh, I don't mean uh, just white kids either. I, I see kids all the time, young folk all the time in this emerging adulthood age category, young adults, emerging adults, as you call them, who have grown up in a world for a variety of reasons where they just feel entitled. 
Mm-hmm. There's some of that. I think, as I said, we, we've been talking about their optimism, their high hopes. Mm-hmm. That's high expectations, too. They expect a lot out of life, probably too much. And, you know, those of us who have them as students in colleges or as employees uh, that we're working with and supervising, that can be frustrating because they often have expectations that exceed their abilities and their skills. Mm. But I guess I, I love this age group, Travis. I mean, I, I think they have a lot. I love their optimism. I love their enthusiasm for life. Yeah, they, if they're entitled, you sometimes have to find a way to let them down. But remember that you were young once, too, and and hopefully somebody was kind to you and and didn't, didn't treat you too harshly when you were getting too full of yourself. Yep. When we come forward in our many moments, there are two questions I am, uh, I'm not going to say dying to ask. I don't want to die to ask them. I do want to ask them, though. Uh, I'm, I'm anxious to ask these two questions. Uh, one of them, he just teed up for me. And that is what you do with a generation of uh, emerging adults in the workplace and beyond who do, in fact, have these expectations. And oftentimes they go beyond expectations. They start making demands of you that exceed their abilities and their uh, and their skills. I don't know what's going on in their head, but their their expectations exceeds their abilities and their skills. But they want to make demands of you. How do you deal with that uh, in in um, in the workplace and beyond. And finally, I want to ask Dr. Uh, Dr. Dr. Arnett, what, is, what his advice would be to emerging adults who are struggling to find their path or make sense of their own experiences and expectations. We talk about the parents. Now his advice for this generation of emerging adults. All of that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Got time for, uh, what, four minutes left. Got time for two more questions for our guest in this hour, Dr. Jeffrey Jensen Arnett. First question, um, what am I to do, since you teed this up, uh, what am I to do with these expectations and, and God help us, these demands that uh, these emerging adults often make that outstrip their abilities and their skills? Uh, yeah, I think it's tricky. You know, I run into this as a college professor, Tavis, because mm-hmm. sometimes there are students who uh, are a bit full of themselves and, and think they know more than I do. And it's irritating, no doubt. I <laughs> like, I understand that irritation that uh, we more mature adults feel when we have to deal with that. You know, I try to remember when I was young. I try to remember that they are still learning and growing. And I also don't hesitate to say, hey, you know, you're out of line. Mm-hmm. I think we have to do that sometimes because... That's one of the ways they learn what the boundaries are. And you still are learning boundaries, I think, even in your 20s. I mean, you still are emerging. You're not completely formed yet. So I wouldn't hesitate. You know, I I don't think it's necessary to do it in a harsh or punitive way. Mm -hmm. But I found with students anyway, they respect when I say, here's the line, and you just went past it, back off. Mm -hmm. Um. Finally, uh, I think this is the I think this is the exit question um, today. Um, what advice would you give to those emerging adults who are struggling to find their path to make sense of whatever the experiences are that they're enduring? I would say try to be patient. I know it's not a patient age. I know that's difficult, but remember that you have the whole decade of your twenties to figure out what your place is in the world. So 
So, you know, especially when you're 21, 22, 23, don't be despairing or uh, giving up or frustrated when you just can't seem to make progress. It will come clear. I think it does for almost everybody. Tavis, I see this going on for my daughter right now. I have 23-year-old twins. My daughter is a wonderful kid. She's brilliant. She's fluent in three languages. She's a terrific writer. She's a musician, and she has no idea what to do with her life. Mm. And so Mm. she's frustrated and sometimes depressed about it. And I keep telling her, you know, you don't have to figure it out today. You don't have to figure out tomorrow. You will figure it out. Keep trying things, keep thinking about things, keep talking to people, and eventually you will find your way. Nope, that's great. You have to be patient, though. That's great advice, and um, she's blessed to have you as her father, um, not just because you love her, but because you're an expert <laughs> on, on, <laughs> on what she's trying to navigate as an emerging adult. Uh, so delighted to have had you on in this hour, Dr. Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, to talk about emerging adulthood. My pleasure. Thank you for your time, sir. All the best to you with those 23-year-old twins. Thank you for the great questions. I really enjoyed it. I'll come back anytime. We'll be happy to have you back. All the best to you. Uh, That is our program for today. Time to make room now for the KBLA Midday Money Chain. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson to be followed by Ahead of the Crypto Curve with Naja Roberts. Old money, new money. You know how we do it around here. Either way, we got you covered.